the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We're in Genesis 3. If you want to go ahead and open there, we read verses 14 through 19, and we will pick up uh, right there on the text. We've been looking at this weekend uh, how Genesis helps us to think about the Christ and think about the nature of God we saw in Genesis chapter 1, the nature of man, the nature of who we are in Genesis chapter 2, and we're examining the nature of sin and the problem of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And as we get into our text today in verse 14, we've already seen that Adam and Eve were tempted, that Eve was tempted by the serpent, that she gave in to her temptations of every kind the serpent brought on her. She ate of the fruit, gave it to her husband, and he ate, and their eyes were open, just as the serpent had said. And they did gain some new knowledge, just as the serpent had promised them. But the only new knowledge they could gain was the knowledge of evil. They had the knowledge of good. That's what was given to them as they were made in this perfect garden paradise and had fellowship with God. So as they now have this knowledge of evil, there is also a knowledge of shame and fear that has come along with that. And so God has asked them about what they did, and they began to blame God in the end. In verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What have you done? And she said, The serpent that you gave me deceived me, and I ate. And so... In these next verses, we see the Lord turn directly to the serpent. And he allowed man and woman to answer for their actions. They didn't answer well, but he allowed them to try. But he goes straight to the serpent's punishment and allows no defense. And what we see in the book of Genesis is a great difference, a gulf between man and the rest of creation. God has given a special place of honor to human beings. And he's given us opportunity for repentance and for forgiveness. And God is allowing Adam and Eve to have this chance. But God turns to the serpent in verse 14. And he says to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God cursed one of his creatures because it used its capacity for intelligence to lead others into evil. God cursed one of his own creation because of that. And this curse has three aspects. The first we see, he says, it will crawl on his belly. The serpent in some way had an exalted position, was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. We learn in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, was able to have access directly to, to Adam and Eve in this way as God was coming to have fellowship with them in the, in the garden. But now he's been humbled from his exalted position as a serpent that speaks and maybe flies or walks will now have to crawl on his belly. It's a posture of humiliation. Something to remember how his intelligence and intellect and cunning working against God have brought him to a lowly state. Besides that, it would have to eat dust all the days of its life. Dust is carnal. It's earthly. It reminds us of, of death in the end. Uh, he'll no longer be eating of the green and living herb that was given to all the animals and to the man as a blessing, but now we'll have to eat of dust, of really flesh is the idea here. This is part of the curse, and we'll see it brought full bore after the day of the flood, when God says that all animals can then eat the flesh, and that man can eat of the flesh. But this is taking away the blessing of the green herb from the diet of the snake, of the serpent here, of the serpent. And it says, and God said in the curse, that you would eat dust all the days of your life. There's a limit now. It's the first time we see life limited in a physical way. Its days would come to an end. And finally, 
In verse 15, there's this question of enmity with the woman's seed. And this is really where the focus uh, comes in. This is not just some fear of snakes. This is God putting this enmity here. It's not something that, that comes from the woman. Ah, there's a snake. This is God saying there is enmity. And he really brings in the text not the idea of the serpent himself, but of his descendants, the ones who are like him. What we see in Genesis 3.15 is God stating the end from the beginning. Just at the darkest moment of human history, God shines a ray of hope. He is allowing them to know that although it appears that all hope is gone, there is a plan. And God already had this plan in working before this moment. The woman had this aversion now to the serpent, that friendship that made it so that the serpent could convince her, could beguile her, that will now be an aversion. The serpent will need to be even more clever in the future to win over man. And this war has now begun that will last for generations. And in the end, the serpent will taste defeat. This is the first messianic prophecy we see in verse 15 here. The Christ who will come only of a woman. Isn't it interesting how all the texts that prophesy the coming of the Christ speak of him coming through a virgin, only a woman. <laughs> There's no man involved. And uh, that this is a promise that is brought about through her seed. And we know certainly that Jesus was born without the aid of a man. The Holy Spirit uh, came on his mother Mary and he was born. So he fulfills that. And Galatians 4 tells us that in the fullness of time that Christ was born of woman. It's reminding us back of what the promise was here in Genesis 3 and 15. So God is announcing with these words his plan to save man from what the serpent has done. It's a plan that he's prepared even before he made the universe. Ephesians 1 says very clearly these things were all planned out. 1 Peter 1, Revelation 13, 1 Corinthians 2, there are many, many verses that say God had this plan in effect even before he began to make the universe. So he turns first to the serpent. Without allowing the serpent to defend himself in any way, he lays out what the curse is going to be and the finality. There is going to be a final battle. Your head will be crushed and you will bruise his heel. Then he turns to the woman in verse 16. He's heard her confession where she really ended up blaming him. And uh, he's ordered the sentence against the serpent. So now he's going to decree a sentence on the woman. And her sentence has two aspects that we see really clearly here. First is pain tied to the reproductive process. I don't believe we're talking about just the moment of childbirth here, but the whole menstrual cycle. In fact, if you go through the book of Leviticus, there are sin offerings that must be made that are tied to the menstrual cycle. It's not that she sinned by being on her menstrual cycle. It's that it's tied to this moment when things changed back in the garden. And so there is a sin offering that must be uh, offered up in this case. There is a promise of a descendant, though, that will come through this reproductive process. This descendant that will stomp the head of the serpent is going to require a painful sacrifice from the woman. An even more painful sacrifice for God, who's going to deliver up his own son unto death. But the woman will be actively involved in this process. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul actually brings that out, talking about how it was the woman's role and if she was actively participating in fulfilling her role, she would bring about salvation. I think it's often misunderstood, those verses in 1 Timothy 2. Actually, I'd like to read those two verses. It's in the context of Paul defining the difference between men's and women's roles. And he goes back to the garden. And he says, uh, starting at verse uh, 11, 1 Timothy 2, 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He's talking about distinction of roles here. He's not saying that if a woman never has a child, she can't be saved. And certainly, at this point, there's no chance of bringing about the Savior. He's already come. But what he's saying is that as God defined these roles back with Adam and Eve, that's where he went to in his, in his ex explanation here, that her accepting her role would be what helped to bring about the Savior. And she was faithful in her role that she would bring about the Savior. And so that's the idea, I believe, we're looking at at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that's what he then brings up as we go back to Genesis 3. He's talked about the fact that there will be pain, there will be a sacrifice on her part in this conception, and pain shall bring forth children. He then says, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you, the second half of verse 16 in Genesis 3. It's not a really good translation. There's not really an easy way to translate that uh, text from the Hebrew. We'll get a closer look at what that text really looks like when we get into Genesis 4. I'm not going to do that right now. But the idea here is a question of submission to her husband's rule. And this is not something new. God's not saying, because of this, now you must be submissive. She was created as his helper. And to restore order after sin, after all, she's the one who gave the fruit to Adam, she'll have to accept and fulfill her role properly. And I really believe, as we looked at in 1 Timothy 2, that this has more to do with man's weakness than it really does have to do with woman's weakness. It's not that the woman was weak. She was deceived in this. Adam was not deceived. He gave in for some reason when the woman presented him with the fruit. And what I believe, and we have this restriction on women taking authoritative roles over men, is because men so easily give in to women. How often do we see the husband saying, yes, dear, whenever the woman says something, when perhaps she's acting out of her role and saying things the way she does. Women are often more capable speakers, certainly more comfortable, uh, sometimes in public speaking, than men are. But God says it's the men who should take on that role. One of the big problems in society, and one of the reasons that women often overstep their role that God gave, gave them, is because men aren't fulfilling the roles they need to fulfill. There's a vacuum, and the women then come in, and then men become more effeminate. In fact, our society is effeminizing men from early on, and we need to understand that is not God's plan. The roles are very distinct, and we glorify God when we keep them distinct. And God said they were necessary here, that the woman would fulfill her role properly then salvation would be able to come. And he allowed her then to have the biggest hand in, in bringing about the Savior. And we'll talk about that uh, even more in chapters 3 and 4 as we go through here. Well, after he had decreed the sentence on the serpent and then turned to the woman and decreed her uh, two-aspect sentence, he then turns to the man. And he says, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, well, that's what he really wanted. He made her to be the helper. He's not stopping there and saying you should never listen to your wife. In fact, very often, men listening to their wives would be helpful to them. But what happens here is you listen to the wife when God had already said something else. God had already said, don't eat of that fruit. And he listened to the voice of his wife above and beyond what God had said. It's the same thing that happened later with Abraham and Sarah. God said, I've already told you what my plan was. You heeded the voice of your wife when she said, take my handmaiden. That is not what my plan was, and you listen to the voice of your wife. God expects us to listen to the voices of our wives when they're counseling us and encouraging us to do God's will. But when they go above and beyond, we should say, this is not what God has said. Now, 
God says, you listen to your wife where I'd already given you command. That was the problem. So now, instead of cursing Adam as he cursed the serpent, he cursed the ground, really the earth itself. That's the idea here, which brings consequences on all of creation. Now, as we look at this, I think it's interesting to think about, does the Bible say, does the Bible teach that we're born guilty in sin, that there is a such thing as original sin because of Adam? Is that what the Bible teaches? What can we observe about this from what we've seen here in Genesis chapter 3? The first thing we see is that God is pronouncing punishment individually here. For each person who is guilty of sin, or if you want to count the serpent as a person here, he acted with personhood, the serpent was the first one that received consequence and punishment for sin. And then the woman in verse 16, and finally the man. And the simple question is, if all became guilty because of Adam's sin, why were the serpent and the woman punished first? <laughs> why were they punished for Adam's sin if they sinned before Adam did? It's a question that has no direct answer in the Bible. The only answer would be, there is no sin of Adam that's then transmuted to other people. The curse that God pronounced on the earth because Adam sinned brings consequences. And this is where people get confused on this question of original sin. There are consequences on all of creation. Guilt only comes when we ourselves sin. We all will suffer the consequences, and one of those consequences is physical death. Guilt only comes when we sin ourselves in the likeness of Adam as he had sinned. So I think we need to understand that the Bible is not teaching that there is guilt of original sin. There is consequence of original sin. And an easy way to illustrate that, perhaps, is to think of a family who may be out walking one evening in their neighborhood. And they're just strolling along, and here comes a man in a car who's been at the bar all day drinking, and he runs over and kills three or four of them. Who is guilty for that action? The family suffered consequences, dire consequences. They lost some of their members. But they weren't guilty. It was not their sin that caused that consequence. It was someone else's sin. All of our sin brings about consequence that affects everyone around us and the rest of the world around us. When the flood came, it was because the world and even the animals had corrupted themselves because of the sin of man. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that. So God had cursed the earth because of sin and, and because of Adam's sin. So that's what brought consequence on everybody else. Now, something that's interesting here, and this helps to play into the idea that God is defining roles. As he cursed the ground for Adam's sake, he says, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I liked Josh's translation, because Josh's translation did something that most do not, with verse 16 and verse 17. It translated the same word the same way in English. The Hebrew word for toil here, in my version, was translated sorrow in verse 16. The pain the labor, we speak of labor pains, the labor that the woman goes through in her conception is the same word that's used for the labor the man goes through in tilling and working the earth. The punishment was the same, but it depended on their role as to how that punishment would act out. So the woman will have pains and labor bringing forth children, bringing forth fruit from her womb, while the man would have pains and labor in bringing forth fruit for them to eat, fruit from the field, fruit from the trees. Punishment for the sin is the same, but it's specifically related to the role that each one has to fulfill. So God has said from the beginning that in the day they eat of this tree, they would surely die. God has said now to Adam, you will do this. You will have the cursing on the ground. You'll eat and toil 
all the days of your life. There's that same limit that he put on the servant. You'll do this all the days of your life. There's a limit now. Now, how is it that he can say there's a limit to their life, that they would die? One other consequence before we look at that question. He says in verse 18, thorns and thistles will be brought up because of uh, this cursing to the earth. It'll bring forth thorns and thistles. That'll make it difficult. You'll eat the herb of the field. He's taken away that kind of green lushness of the trees, and now they're eating the herb of the field. So we've got these thorns, and I told you there were several images that the book of Genesis brings out that we'll see repeated all through the Bible, and thorns is one of those images that gets repeated over and over again. When there are thorns somewhere in the Old Testament, almost always you can see the vestiges of sin, especially in the prophets. Both thorns and thistles it'll bring forth on you. A symbol of God's curse on the earth. These thorns bring to mind the sadness of sin throughout the Bible. In Genesis 3.18, the earth brought forth thorns, making man's work toilsome. In Isaiah 34, and verse 13, as God is pronouncing a judgment there, he says, thorns shall come up in their palaces, nettles and brambles in their fortresses. <laughs> These thorns coming up for them, God pronouncing judgment on their sin. In Hosea 9, verse 6, nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. And remember in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul speaks of a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him so that he didn't become exalted above measure. This idea of thorns all throughout the Bible has some tie-in with sin. And Paul certainly uh, was convicted of the guilt of his sin before. He knew he had been forgiven, but he had this thorn in his flesh now to keep him humble. There's one image of thorns that I think is more moving than all the other images of thorns we get through the Bible. And this one is really... Uh, tied to this promise. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 1 Peter 2, 24, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. <laughs> Think back about what was going on in the process as they were beating Jesus and preparing him to go to the cross. They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And there's a de detail that's really amazing about who was involved in that moment. If that had been Jews who had done that, we might have understood that they knew this symbol of the thorns and were saying, here's the guy who thinks he's the king of the Jews. Let's show that he's the king of sin. But it wasn't the Jews who did that. It was the Roman soldiers who made a crown of thorns and put it on his head as they called him the king of the Jews. As they were doing it in spite, they really fulfilled the complete circle of this symbology that he would carry on himself our sins and the, the crown of death that should have been ours, he wore into death that couldn't be held by it as he was resurrected later as we remembered as we uh, took the Lord's Supper today. That symbol of thorns comes out in the very end of our story when the Christ uh, comes up to be the king of kings. Well, there's a manifestation of this curse on the earth was the thorns and the thistles. And because of these thorns, the man's work, which before had been simply to tend and to keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, will now be much harder. He's going to have to till, till the earth. He's going to have to clear the stones. He's going to have to plant. He's going to have to harvest. It's going to be a hard job that he's going to have to be involved in. And he will be uh, taken back to earth, uh, as we're told in verse uh, uh, 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This 
image is really kind of disgusting in verse 19. You'll eat in the sweat of your face. You'll eat bread in the sweat of your face. Think about the, the bread maker as he's kneading the dough. The water he's using is the sweat dripping off his face. That's how hard and laborious this, this work is going to be. He's going to be eating as he pours himself into his work. God has designed man to work. And a consequence of sin is that we must work to maintain ourselves. And it's a sad state, on, on a, certainly on our, our country here and in many other places, that people do not want to work. They want to get something for nothing. Part of what God has planned for us is that we'll work and we'll toil toward, uh, toward our own salvation. Certainly that's the spiritual side of things. What about this idea of death? I said we would come back to that. God said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And he now tells them, you will do this until the day you return to the earth. And God had said, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But it's evident that they were still alive if they're going to be receiving this sentence and working and toiling. So did God lie? Was Satan right when he said, you will not surely die? Well, it depends on how you look at this question of death. They did not die physically on that day. But if they did not die on that day, then God is a liar. And the serpent can really claim victory. So did they die that day or not? And I think there's plenty of evidence in the text that says they did. James chapter 2 verse 26 tells us, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There's a, a simple math problem, if you will, here. Death is a separation. The body, if you subtract the spirit, is dead. It's the spirit that gives a life force. We talked a little bit about that from Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2. So if the body has no spirit, the body's dead. If faith has no works, faith is dead. James makes that conclusion for us based on something that's known to be true about the body with its spirit. Well, spiritual death is described as being a separation from God. Us, without God, we're dead. So that's what we're looking at. That's what God was trying to get them to understand. Isaiah 59, very famously says, it's your iniquities that have separated you from your God. He, it's not that he can't hear, it's that he won't. You've put up a barrier with your iniquities. You are dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. But God can make you alive again in Christ. He can hear you again. He can come back to you through Christ. So what's the evidence in the text here that they are actually dead from the day they ate of the fruit? Think about this. The first thing we see, they disobeyed God. God had given them clear understanding, clear instruction. They disobeyed that. That's pulling themselves away from God. That's a separation from God. That's spiritual death. God comes to have fellowship with them and they hide from him. They ran from him. It's not that he pulled away. They pulled away. That's spiritual death. They're afraid of God. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus came to release those who their whole life were in bondage by sin for fear of death. <laughs> Those who were in fear, God, Jesus released them from that. He brought them near to God again. But these were in fear. Adam and Eve were afraid of God. And in the end, when he said, why have you done this? They blamed God. <laughs> you gave me the woman. You gave us the snake. You gave us the serpent. If you hadn't done that, we'd be fine. So all of those are indicators right in the text that they are dead spiritually from the day they ate. They're separated from God. The only word that God uses to describe that separation is death. It's the most dire condition that we can imagine. It is the human condition. But Jesus came precisely to give life. He came to restore the relationship between the fallen man and his God. Those who had been separated, he came to bring back, to give them life and life abundant. Well, 
Let's look at verses 20 through 24 to, to finish out the text here, and we'll see some promise and some hope. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east side of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is an amazing scene as you think about all the details here of what God did. The first thing, Adam, and, uh, Adam calls his wife named Eve because she's the mother of all living. It shows that Adam and Eve accepted their sentence. They are going to continue in the presence of the Lord, now living in the way that he said they must live. They'll continue producing children, and there's a new hope they have that as they do that, they'll bring about the seed that was mentioned in verse 15, that descendant that will crush the head of the serpent. Now, the man and his wife were clothed with aprons and then with trees, yet the Lord looks at them and he realizes that's not enough. They realize it wasn't enough. There's only two people on earth at this time, a married couple, and he says, put some clothes on. He made tunics for them and covered their bodies. This word tunics describes something that hangs from the shoulder down to the thighs. Where there's sin in the world, only God can cover the body in a holy way. We've got to develop the mind of God and the understanding of God to be able to be covered in the way that God expects us to be covered before others in the world. But there's more to this than just the aspect of God providing clothing for them. He certainly did that. But as he provided these clothings made, this clothing made of tunics of skin, God also performed the first animal sacrifice. Clothing made of leaves, it didn't kill anything. But when you put animal skins, and the word is plural, which means each one had an animal that died for them. Amen. This is the first time we see a foreshadowing of this basis for the plan of redemption, where an innocent <laughs> dies in the place of the guilty. And a lamb of God will be the innocent one who comes to pay the price for sin of all humanity with his own innocent life. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, God says, I gave you the blood on the altar to atone for sin because in the blood is life. These innocent animals are paying their life for yours. And that's why in John 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, there he is, the Lamb of God. What a strange thing to be the first thing you say about someone you see coming along. Look at that animal over there. <laughs> but any Jew knows the Lamb of God means he is the sacrifice. He's the one that was being foretold all the way from Genesis chapter 3. He's the one who will cover our sins and clothe us in righteousness. Well, there's a problem. Verse 22, besides the need for clothing, God took care of that. He then looks and says, you know, the man now is like us in terms of his knowledge of good and evil. He has access to knowing things that are evil, but he doesn't have our good nature. God knows of evil, but doesn't act in an evil way. He understands because he understands all things. But it's beyond God to think or to do evil, even though he knows of its existence. But a man with the capacity for evil and access to the tree of life, who would Hitler be today if he couldn't die? <laughs> what would he be doing today? He might be the only person left alive if he couldn't die. Think of all the terrible people that have lived through all time, Nebuchadnezzar and some of the Assyrian rulers that were just cruel, cruel people. If there was no fear of death and nothing to stop them, they would become demons. <laughs> that was what they would be. 
And so God says we can't let the man live forever. We can't let him have access to this tree forever. And so the serpent was right, though, wasn't he? God even said, now they're like us in terms of what they know. They've become like us. And they've lost their true likeness of God in their innocence of the knowledge of only good. Many people still need to learn and understand this. Being truly like God means so much more than just knowing the right information. We think the more I know, the more I'll be like God. We know that's not true. Some of the most intelligent people in the world are nothing like God. It's not just an influx of information. It's an influx of good and the practice of good that draws us near to God. And we need to learn that and quit putting our confidence in men that just seem so intelligent they must have the right answers. We need to trust in goodness and righteousness as God revealed it. But a sinner who could never die would become a demon or a devil, and God can't let that happen. The fear of death really is a great motivator for avoiding many sins and reckless acts. A lot of us have said, I don't want to do that because, you know, what if I die doing that? I saw a, a newsreel one time when I was in Brazil. They'll show a lot more graphic things than they'll show on the news here. But it was people that had just robbed a bank and were speeding away in some SUV. And as they're speeding away, the helicopter's chasing them and filming it. And the guy loses control of the SUV and it starts to flip. He went out through the sunroof and came back down in the oncoming traffic on the other side of the highway and was run over instantly. Fortunately, I didn't see all of that. I just saw him come flying out and turned away. But they said that's what happened to him. But the first thing I thought was, I wonder if he was repenting while he was flying through the air. Here's a guy who dies in a car chase after he's just robbed a bank, killed somebody doing it, and then he dies right away. Not much chance for that man to have made peace with God and sought to do what's righteous in that short amount of time. Death is a motivator for avoiding those kinds of sin. <laughs> Proverbs 5, 22 and 23, his own iniquities entrap the wicked man. He shall die for lack of instruction. We want to avoid death. And so we do a lot of things to avoid it. And often we avoid sin because of that. God has put that there as a deterrent. How often has he presented as a first uh, level of deterrent? Hellfire. <laughs> you don't want to end up there. <laughs> you killed the Christ, Peter said in, in, in Acts chapter 2. And they said, what do we do? How do we avoid punishment? We don't want to die. Peter told them what to do to be saved. So what would you do? <laughs> the man can't have access to the tree of life. My wife often says, it's a good thing you're not God. My sense of justice is often not nowhere near what God's would be. And I think, well, if I was the one making the decisions, that wouldn't have gone that way. And she says, a good thing you're not God. God is righteous. But if I look at that tree of life and don't want the man to have access, I'm cutting that baby down. Take it out of there so we can't have access to it. But God did not do that. It's interesting what God did. He guarded the entrance with strong angels. Well, the angels are scary in the Bible. They're not these cute little cherubs that are shooting arrows on Valentine's Day. They're frightening. Usually the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. I come with a good message. And everybody's like, okay. He put these frightening, very strong angels and a flaming sword in their hand to make sure nobody gets back in to that way that leads to the tree of life. Why not just destroy the tree of life? What has God done in allowing the tree of life to stand there and just blocking the entrance. He's extended hope to the man and his wife. And the rest of the Bible will talk about how to get back in there. <laughs> There's a way back. That's what he's left open. Now we know that later this whole area was destroyed in the flood. But for Adam and Eve, as they're beginning their walk back with God, they can look over and say, you know, someday 
those angels are going to be removed. Someday, that opening is going to be back and we can have access to that tree of life again. God did not destroy the tree, but only blocked the way for a while. We find the tree of life again in the Bible, in the paradise of God, to which we have access by means of Jesus Christ, that one who was promised, that seed, that descendant. Look with me, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 10. It's beautiful to see this. The hope that God left open there in the garden as he didn't destroy the tree but only blocked the way, he has reopened access in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's interesting the language that Hebrews 10 uses. In Revelation 22, we see that the tree of life is there as the water is flowing out from the, from the throne of the, of the king. But it's interesting the language that's used in Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know if you've thought much about this. It says that this, these cherubs were put up at the east of Eden. That's where they were guarding the entrance. When they built the tabernacle later on, the entrance was from the west to the east. In the very center of that tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, where there was the golden ark where the presence of God would be. And we talked about the, the gold and the incense and the onyx stones on the, on the shoulders of the high priest as he would go in there. But I want you to think about what that meant to those who were going in. They would go from the west to the east through this guarded gate. And there was a veil there that kept them from getting into the ark. If you read through Exodus, you find out that stitched onto that veil, cherubs, they were guarding the way to the access of God. What happened to that veil that we just read in Hebrews chapter 10? On Jesus' death, that veil was ripped. Those cherubs were parted, and the way to access the Holy Holy was granted again. That's a beautiful image. It is something that God sprinkled all through the Bible in such a way that when you see the whole thing together, you say, wow, men would never have done that. There's no way that story would have been that complete over thousands of years, more than 40 different writers, 66 books, speaking different languages and writing at different times. They wrote one complete theme where all the little details fit together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle. When I was an atheist, that kept me from saying this Bible is written by men. That and other little details like that. There's no way that men could have done that. God extended hope to the man and his wife. He's extended that same hope to us. We saw in the garden that it looked like all hope was gone. The serpent had deceived Adam and Eve. Consequences were dire, brought death into the world. Sin reigned from Adam, Romans says, because we'll see as we look later this afternoon in Genesis chapter 4, their own children, one killed the other. There was sin in their lives. And we know from our own lives how sin has ravaged us, it has dominated over us, and how we see it all around us. The Lord wants to grant us hope and access to the tree of life. He wants to do that. He's made that available in Jesus. I want us to look at two last uh, pieces of scripture before we finish up. Romans chapter three. Just said that uh, you know sin has reigned in the, in the world since, uh, since Adam. Romans chapter three and verse 23 says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means me and you, everybody here has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need his grace to bring us back from that sin. We, we need access again because we've been cast out. 
But in Luke chapter 23, and this is, uh, to me, this is some beautiful words, where Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, gives hope to a dying criminal that gives the same hope to all of us who have sinned. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse uh, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's reminding him of that hope of getting back into Eden, going through the veil. Jesus will go through that veil in a very short time. <clears throat> this man gets to go in with him. We can all go in with him too. Hebrews chapter 10 says so. We've been offered a living way back in through the veil into the very presence of God that Adam and Eve lost through sin, that we lost through the guilt of our own sin, but God wants to forgive us, and he'll forgive you today. <laughs> I don't know what your situation is here. We're so grateful that you're here with us. We see that you desire to learn of God and to study his word and to, and to glorify him in worship. We're so thankful for your presence today. If you're not a Christian and you leave here without being a Christian, you've wasted this chance today. The Lord wants you to come back to him, he wants to bring you back into paradise and keep you there eternally. And we'd love to help you to be able to do that. If we can help you with that need, we'd love to. If as a Christian you've been struggling and you just like the prayers and the encouragement of those who are here, if I can help you in any way, whatever your need may be, just make it known. We're going to stand and sing a song. We encourage you to come forward while we do that. And let us know what you need. Number seven,